deserves to have that much money. Right, I mean, that's not like, I don't, it's, you know, I think if you do something that's good, you, you know, you get rewarded, but I, but I do think some of these, um, some of the wealth that can be accumulated um, is unreasonable. And I mean, part of, part of this is why um, my wife and I started the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, our philanthropy, and pledged that we're gonna give 99% of our Facebook shares away through that um, over, over, our, over our lifetime. Um, but, but look, I, I think some of, some of this gets to a, a deeper question where I think there are people who would even say, even that's bad, right? It's, it's like, there shouldn't be an accumulation of private wealth that allows people to, um, you know, it's like we're funding science, for example, and it's like, and some people I think would say, well, is it fair that um, that you know a group of, of wealthy people get to um, to some degree choose which which science projects get get worked on? And you know, I, I don't know how to how to answer that exactly. I mean, it's at some level it's not fair, but it may be. Um, optimal in, in that it's like, it, or better than the alternative. What's the alternative, Zuck? The alternative is, get the fuck out, bud. Hey, this is the cold open. We're not talking yet. Oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sam Bankman fried I'm the CEO and co-founder of FTX. I, uh, you know, brief backstory, I went to MIT, um, uh, had a good time there, though I, I guess I learned that I, I didn't want to go into academia. Worked uh, on Wall Street for about three and a half years after that at Change Free Capital. Really, really enjoyed it there. Um, got into crypto in 2017 and started up FTX a year later. FTX is a global crypto exchange. Um, it's, you know, one of the top four or so exchanges globally have been building that out for the last few years. With roommates sleeping on a beanbag in his office and his belief in effective altruism, saying most of his money gets reinvested into his businesses and the rest will eventually be given away to his preferred altruistic causes. Joining me now is Sam Bankman Freed. So Sam, great to have you. FTX has risen, rising all this year, gaining massive valuations and sponsoring the World Series. How does the company keep growing in 2022? You know, some of it, which is sort of, I think, the boring answer, although an important one, is just doing a good job at executing our core business, providing good service to clients, um, building great products. fucking comedians <laughs> welcome everyone we are back this is the first episode of wet wired for 2023 i'm sean Andes, and i'm julian paul butt if you haven't been watching the news or trolling twitter you might not have noticed that it has been a very bad few months for billionaires one after another they've been breaking down the myth that they're in any way special or worthy of our admiration 
Here's a little rundown on what some of the most notable billionaires have been up to in the last four or five months. Kanye West. Kanye melted down Protocols of the Elders of Zion style. It was only just back in October when Kanye and Candace Owens showed up at a Paris fashion show wearing matching White Lives Matter shirts. Since then, he's lost his Adidas contract, got escorted out of the Skechers corporate headquarters, got his account reinstated on Twitter after Elon Musk's takeover, a little bit more about Musk later, only to get kicked off Twitter again a few weeks later, this time for posting the Raelian swastika Star of David symbol, which he is definitely not using in the Raelian way. He is definitely not using it in that way. Also, we have spent so much time on the Raelians. I feel like I'm a an honorary member. Did you, were you insulted at Kanye's mis, misappropriation of the symbol? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the 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 space aliens are very upset. I'm sure the Elohim are not happy. <laughs> Kanye topped off his speed run to see how fast he can wreck his life by taking Groiper leader Nick Fuentes as his plus one to a dinner hosted by Donald Trump. Nick Fuentes, I know everybody's already said it a thousand times. But I cannot reiterate enough times, he's proud to be an incel. It's not, it, he is the worst teenage boy that you've ever met, full of all of this teen angst, and then mix that with a little bit of Mein Kampf, and you got Nick Fuentes. Kanye wrapped up his flame out by appearing on Alex Jones's show, cosplaying as Cobra Commander. He really did. I mean, he he had he had the it wasn't even quite a ski mask. You're not Hitler. You're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I I see I I see good things about Hitler. Also, the Jew. I love everyone, and Jewish people are not going to tell me you can love, um, you know, us. And you can love what we're doing to you with the contracts. And you can love what we're, you know, what we're pushing with the pornography. But this guy that invented highways, invented the very microphone that I use as a musician, you can't say out loud that this person ever did anything good. And I'm done with that. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. Especially Hitler. <laughs> Especially Hitler. <laughs> I know everybody's heard this clip already or watched the entire show. The, 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 the whole two and a half hours is full of this kind of stuff. But the outfit is what I just I. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it's it's not even quite a ski mask. Exactly. No, it's a hood. It's it's it's, it's a hood. It is a black hood with with no eye holes or a mouth hole cut out. So you can't see any facial expression or anything. It is just a black hood he's wearing. And, a big and he's coat. just he's 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 simply having a fucking episode for this interview where it's not like we don't know who he is. No, he, he appears like this in public, too, though. It, it's it's definitely it's it's an element of his wardrobe. I mean, he, he's he's worn the mask a number of times. Yeah. My point being, it's it's not to conceal his identity. No, no, no of course not. <laughs> he's just fucking off the rails. All right. Now, Jules is going to tell us a little about Elon Musk. Elon, Elon Musk times 2021 person of the year, who was until recently the richest person on the planet and was previously famous for all kinds of things, is now spending most of his time trying to turn Twitter into a Gab clone. 
I don't know if a lot of people even know what Gab is. I mean, oh, you and know. I are. I think on people Gab. who listen to this show know what Gab is. All right. Well, it's. It, I mean, obviously, it's a right wing social n- network. It, yeah. If anybody doesn't thing. know what Gab is, don't find out. You don't need yeah, to know anymore. You're, you're we're, fine. We're going to tell you everything you it. need to know. <laughs> Essentially, and, Gab was previously a Twitter clone, except it was only for far right extremists. You know, this sort of free speech crowd. Well, since Musk became the free speech guy, he's been inviting a lot of people back. And the thing that he's learned along the way is that if you don't moderate content and let the right wing maniacs run free, then you won't have enough normal people around to keep the site active. And you can see this in the advertisers that have completely bailed on Twitter. If you using Twitter recently, you should see these ads for these ridiculous, terrible video games or crypto scams or trading cards like NFT trading cards. I mean, these aren't even Trump trading cards. These are worse than that. The advertisers, the advertisers who are left are pretty much the same ones who are advertising on Pornhub. They're who who will just advertise wherever the fuck. They don't give a shit. Yeah. Anywhere. And. Really, when we're when we're talking about Twitter, it's fucking something like ninety five percent of their revenue is coming from advertisers. What else would and it come before, from? People, I mean, it's not coming from people buying verification badges. <laughs> you can't make money by firing people. <laughs> I, it, it it doesn't generate income. I mean, sure, you can you can limit some of your expenses a bit. Jack Welch taught us that with GE. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the, the thing about those free speech sites, too, like Parler and Gitter and Truth Social now, is that if, if anybody's ever used them, and I've created accounts on all these sites and I, I've, you know, I've interacted with people and followed people and just to see what people are talking about. And it is incredibly boring. They're so it's dumb. It's so fucking boring because there, there's, there's no one nothing to argue going with. on there. It's a bunch of people that wish they were yelling at liberals and they don't have and any leftists. liberals to yell at. So they have nothing else to do. It's, it's a one yeah. person argument. Well, we, we definitely thought that Elon. I mean, I didn't. But there was this idea that Elon Musk had this fucking Midas touch. And that oh, wasn't I totally an bought ex- into it. I, I mean, there, there was there was definitely a point in the past, especially around like I mean, what is it like the second Iron Man movie when he did the cameo, you know, like uh, around that time <laughs> and you, you had um, uh, um, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Tony Stark driving, a, driving a Tesla, you know, like absolutely, you know, like th- this was it was a very exciting thing about seven years ago. And I think that I really I floated on that momentum for a while. I thought Elon Musk was doing amazing stuff. Yeah, I remember in 2018, maybe when he was um, uh, he he was addressing a um uh, an international conference in Mexico uh, in Mexico for uh, for uh, for space travel, and or regarding space exploration, and when he was unveiling the plans for the uh, for the uh, the Falcon Heavy rocket, and then the uh, and then finally, what you know, at that point, what was unnamed. The uh, the the BFR is what it was called back then, which was mm-hmm. you know once you found out that it was it, it, the the letters stood for big fucking rocket, you know then <laughs> it, there was there was something that was the, like there, the there BFG in that video game from the from the fucking early aughts. 
Yeah. I mean, there was something Duke there Nukem. was something at that point that was refreshing about it. And I, I definitely was clueless about the rest of what what his operation was, because it was all facade that was being presented. So that's what I took. And I really didn't spend much time looking any deeper than that. I was I was totally content with absorbing the facade because well, so that many facade is the point. Well, that's Sorry, the thing is it's because so mainly because so not because the facade itself was so convincing on its own, but because it had the weight of so many other people that seemed to be convinced by it. And I didn't ask any questions. But now when we look at, you know, the the, the Elon Musk that we have currently, that's that's we have much more unmoderated access to than we ever did in those previous versions of him or that previous appearance of him. It is undeniable, I think, to anybody who really wants to see it, that he he's really he's a he's slowly transforming into Baron Harkonnen. Pre previously on Libertarian Billionaires. Y yeah, we well with with Elon Musk, it's absolutely not an accident in his case. I mean, in many people's case who fit the profile, but Elon Musk in particular has failed upward specifically by making this reputation of himself creating this brand as as the man with the Midas touch regarding uh what whatever whatever kind of of tech or or entrepreneurism that he might encounter where he sued i forget which i forget if it was it was tesla or, or another one, I, I'm pretty sure it was Tesla, where he sued them specifically to be named as a founder, even though he was absolutely not a founder. Yeah, he, he wrote that into when he, when he acquired shares in PayPal, it was the same kind of arrangement. I don't think it was a lawsuit, but it was definitely arranged that he would be listed as a founder. He's never, yeah. he, aside from, from SpaceX, I don't believe he's actually ever really founded anything that was successful. I mean, I suppose you can make that argument with PayPal, at least to the extent that PayPal acquired something that Elon Musk did, did found, X.com, which was a payment which, platform. Which even then was pretty fucking dog shit. I mean, they well, just happened to be acquired. Well, because I think there, there was, there was some technology that was useful. And so as far as PayPal was concerned, and it was also a competitor, or at least potentially one. So there, there was, you know, that was something he actually did create that and then sell it. So I mean, the, the PayPal thing is like, it makes a little bit more sense, even though he didn't technically found PayPal. He did found the, I mean, he is sort of a founder of the more recent incarnation that included acquiring his company, you know? So I, I get either, that. I, the, the important Tesla, thing that I'm Tesla is egregious though. The situation it's with Tesla. It's fucking egregious. I mean, the, it, because the, the original founder, the one who actually developed the, the, the company and had the initial idea it has been entirely written out of it to the point that to, to the extent that I can't even think of the guy's name right now. I mean, I'm sure I can look it up, but I don't remember it. It's certainly not on the tip of my tongue. In each of these cases, it's presented to the public and to the press uh, in, in all of the narratives as if he is the brain, the, 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 the guy who is the number one thinker behind 
PayPal and Tesla and SpaceX. And he is not only a rocket scientist, but he's also some kind of a master coding expert <laughs> and a, a, a genius in 10 other fields that are unrelated. But that's the the image that he has crafted by law when necessary and, or by, by lawsuit when necessary and otherwise simply gone out of his way to make it so that that's the case. And in the case of Tesla, that actually did for a period of time benefit Tesla greatly because that was the whole fucking shtick. He was the CEO of Tesla and Tesla was getting shares and investment based on the idea that they had as their CEO, this, this man with the Midas touch. And that was really what he brought to Tesla. And for, for whatever it's worth, it did work because he brought that myth to Tesla. And it was generating incredible amount of, of at least uh, by way of shares, income to the company. Because well, yeah, one, one car company that, that had was having trouble meeting a very low quota for production was up until recently was valued more than GE, Chrysler, Ford all put together. And then and then we see and they weren't even same... making any cars. They were making, you know, maybe maybe 10, 14,000 cars a year. And what we see from him is that is that he says shit. And it influences it markets significantly for those things that he's talking about, including Dogecoin. And when he showed up on SNL, that shit fucking tanked. That really, that, that appearance on SNL was probably the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. Because it, it really, there, there is a, uh, there's a continuous path from where he was at the point that he was pumping Dogecoin to that SNL appearance and then to where we are now. You know, we, we saw the, the pumping Dogecoin got him lots of criticism, but it didn't affect his reputation and it didn't affect the, you know, things at large. But that SNL appearance, was it was just a, a downward trajectory since then. And, you know, the as in terms of his reputation, in terms of his wealth, in terms of, I mean, basically every aspect of him has, has been cratering since then. And it's the other side of the coin of everything that he is. I mean, uh, otherwise, he's he's the son of f fucking uh, uh, South African, uh, basically, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? I have no uh, idea. But basically, he... He, otherwise, he's the son of, of the South African, let's say, entrepreneur who was utilizing mining in terrible conditions. Uh, we might even argue uh, next to slavery and, uh, uh, and all the horrible things throughout apartheid. And that's where his original wealth, his, his little uh, uh, seed comes from. He, he and his mother both recently denied any knowledge of any emerald mine. Yeah, of course they did. Even though, even though back in 2012, I think uh, Musk gave an interview in, uh, for Forbes magazine where he specifically talked about visiting his father's emerald mine, that, or the the emerald mine that his father owned half of. Yeah, of course, of course. But now it's now it's a mystery. Like, where's this emerald mine? Why does everybody keep talking about it? Yeah. 
And when you when you look at the when you look at the not that aesthetics matter that much, uh, but it's odd to look at at some of the photos of his early years where he's getting bought out by by PayPal or his his shitty little company was being bought out by PayPal acquired. Yeah, acquired. And uh, he's he's starting to bald like his hair looks like shit. Uh Oh, we got hair plug jokes coming. And then he does have doll hair. And then you see his present image and he looks better than he did then. And it's like, wow. I don't know. The, the, yeah, the, you saw the, the pictures the kind of, of him. Time, the, the kind of time travel I that, don't think that he money can better make. better than he did then. You saw the pictures of him on that yacht where he's getting hosed down by his manservant. Let's just say his face looks better. I don't know. Like, I, I was serious about the Baron Harkonnen thing. He looks incredibly <laughs> puffy. <laughs> I, I, I think I the next Tesla invention isn't going to be some robot, you know, some vaporware robot. It's going to be the the floating chair. It 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 might be anti fucking uh, hornet remedy because it does look his face looks like it it really got attacked badly. Next on the list is Jeff Bezos because you might think this is an Elon Musk episode, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> The Amazon CEO has done his best to distract everyone from paying attention to Amazon's union-busting actions. Part reputation management and part demonstration of his largesse, Bezos released a statement saying that he intends to give away most of his $120-plus billion fortune sometime before he dies. Three seconds before. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's just like in, the, in, the, in that intro clip that we played about about Zuckerberg, a 99% of Facebook shares before before he dies or before he and his wife die. Well, I mean, so what? The, we're we're going to get into this more, but that has no effect on their actual stand, their quality of life. There is no suffering that is involved in any of this sort of giving. Warren Buffett has made a similar pledge about his own wealth and about how much he intends on giving away. And I'm sure his kids were pissed about that. But the none of that will have any impact on his on his standard of living. He will suffer in no way whatsoever. None of these people will. And you know, the, you, you these see, I'm I'm leaning hard into where we're heading, but it should be obvious right now that that you know this kind of billionaire philanthropy, you know that 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 Bezos is doing is really just a distraction. These these billionaires have so much of their assets tied up in shares. Which not only makes it so that there's either low or no taxes involved in their wealth, so that they can be multi-billionaires, and they simply leverage their their assets as shares to borrow money from banks at you know certain very very low interest prices or, or whatever it is, so that they can have the liquid capital to do whatever the fuck they want to do, but not actually pay taxes on that capital because it's borrowed from the future and then when it gets paid back it still gets paid back from the shares themselves so they basically are are able to have this extraordinary amount of wealth that is either marginally taxed or untaxable now that 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 whole scheme is you know i i i completely agree that's my understanding of what they're doing too but it only works when the shares keep going up when the value of the shares keep going up Unless you tank your that's own fucking company Musk with your reputation. Is, that's why Elon Musk is formerly the richest person on the planet. 
fucking number two, bitch. <laughs> I don't well, even really, think he's number two. Well, really, I mean, we we have to add the asterisk of probably Vladimir Putin is number one. I don't think I, I think Elon Musk dropped out of the top 10. Oh, did he drop that fucking yeah. far? He lost a lot of money. Oh, I have so Tesla, much shot Tesla about lost that. something like 60, I, Tesla lost something over 60 percent of its value. I Sean, I can only get so erect. <laughs> <laughs> Bezos's statement was made a little over a month after a leaked Amazon memo revealed their strategy to use software called the Geospatial Operating Console, or SPOC, SPOC, to track global threats to the company. All right, that's all fine. But of the 40 or so threats that, was, was ident- that were identified by the software, which included topics like weather, climate change, COVID, things like that, more than half of them were related to employee union actions. Oh, so is is he going to enable uh, unions? No, you uh, you heard that exactly backwards. <laughs> Do you follow? No, I am following. I, I'm I'm being sar- I'm being sardonic. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's that's so that's this, sardo- sardony. So this giant this giant news about Amazon treating employee unionization as a threat to the company gets you know it gets a little bit of uh, gets a few news cycles, but then it's totally distracted by giant numbers like one hundred and twenty billion dollars. Holy! And now shit, we can that's see a lot of fucking bread. And now we can see what the whole purpose of these kinds of annou- announcements actually are, and. You know, we can also hopefully finally kill this myth that somehow acquiring enormous wealth is somehow related to intelligence or competence or some other thing like that. And not just entirely based on having the good luck to have been born to a father like Elon Musk, who owned an emerald mine, or like Bezos, who had a stepfather that could loan him almost $300,000 to start Amazon. Most people don't have access to the people who can give them these things, who can provide this kind of background. And even if Elon Musk didn't get a giant loan from his father to start any of his companies, he did get he he had the 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 benefit of having been in an environment raised with that kind of money and access to that kind of education. I mean, he claims that he had student loan debt and things like that. Who knows with anything that he says? If you could take his word for it, but the guy lied on Twitter about how his son, how his child died. And he's a fucking stone's throw from Santos at this point. I, yeah, I really, I mean, he, 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 his ex-wife called him out publicly on Twitter for saying like, for the record, you weren't the one holding our baby in your arms when it died. I was because that was his what reason a fucking for not creepy thing to lie about. Yeah, Well, that was his reason for not allowing Alex Jones back on Twitter and reinstating his account is that is Alex Jones's actions regarding the kids at Sandy Hook. And well, I mean, that's an easy position to take. It doesn't quite jive with his free speech absolutist stance, but you know, it definitely, you know, is the is leans the right way as far as public opinion goes, considering Alex Jones had just had the 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 lawsuit go to go against him. But his explanation for that in a conversation I think with Sam Harris uh, on Twitter was that uh, was how Alex Jones treated those kids and 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 like some sort of transference about his own child dying in his arms from SIDS how these things have anything to do with each other who knows i mean it's a pretty it's a pretty big jump 
But then to find out that it, the way that he portrayed those events isn't what actually even happened. So why would you, I mean, why would you come up with this sort of non sequitur of an example to, you know, to justify what you're, you're thinking on this and then to really just like make up a, an incredibly significant detail about it. And on top of all the things, one of the options that he had was saying nothing and just not fucking reinstating him. There had to be thousands of people who who were fucking banned, among whom were were very popular among certain crowds or whatever. He could have just said nothing at all to anyone. I don't think he can do that. He, he, can, he can't do that when somebody has hundreds of thousands or in the case of Sam Harris's account, over a million followers. I, you know, like he, he can't do it. He's not capable of it. I'm not saying that there, there's anything that prevents him other than whatever's operating in his own mind. But he, I don't think Musk is capable of ignoring those kinds of accounts because so much of this is, is based around, I think, his, his desire to, to be the cool guy, to be popular. And the and I and he can't ignore somebody else with this giant popularity. Hey, hey, guys, where are you going? Why are you? Why are you? Why are you going? To, oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll catch up with you later. Then I guess that's him. That's that. That's he's that guy. So again, not an Elon Musk episode. <laughs> but his example should really be the cautionary tale and remind everybody that billionaires are not thought leaders. And they're not going to save us because they literally don't know how to save us. Billionaires can be just as self-interested as anyone else or just as much of an idiot or mentally ill or, you know, anything else. Name, name the attribute. They're basically just people that happen to have a lot of money for reasons, usually not because of their own savvy. There's no such thing as a self-made billionaire. I'm not saying they're dumb. I mean, they're, 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 most of them seem like they're fairly intelligent. They've now definitely managed to figure some things out, even if it's at, at the everybody else's expense, but they're still not going to save us. That brings us all the way to probably the most average of the billionaires or former billionaires, Sam Bankman Freed. I, for one, I, I've been avoiding talking too much about Sam Bankman-Fried because there seem to be new developments almost every other week about this. Very quickly, I realized that, you know, anything that gets said is going to be dated immediately. And this isn't, you know, this isn't a journalistic magazine or a journalistic type show where, you know, we're, we're on top of every current event as it happens. You know, this, that's not what we're doing. No, we, nothing no we're doing is breaking yeah, this just in. There is no way we could possibly <laughs> support something like that. Neither one of us have nearly enough time. But it seems to have stabilized a little bit, which is why we're doing this episode now. Mostly because he's in custody. Yes. Well, he, I, he's, he, he's, mostly out, he's out on he bail. Mostly because he can't fucking do anything. He, he's, he's out on bail, but still. You know, the um and and I think it was also and it was like a million and something like some outrageous quantity of money. I think it I don't was remember more what it was, like, but you like should it look it up real quantity. fast. But I think it was like more like meal. twenty million. It was more than a million, which is more than my tiny little brain can fathom. Uh yeah, two hundred and fifty million. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ! 
Yeah. So, so he's out on bail and for, and he also, he broke a record there too. So, you know, notoriety from multiple angles, his bail was the highest on record at $250 million. I, I mean, for obvious reasons, he, he, he'd been physically sure. located in, in the Bahamas. He, he probably qualifies by pretty much everybody's standards as a flight risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, this well, is the kind of guy well, who's going to like end up in Russia or something like that. This motherfucker is not a cheeseburger in paradise at the moment. He's he's really, really doing quite badly. Depending on who's talking at the height of his wealth, that, that is back in September of 2022. What is that? Four months ago? <laughs> Come on, God. <laughs> Every, there's so wow. many things happening. Freed was worth anywhere from 20 to $40 billion. Today, however, his net worth is around closer to $100,000. And he lost most <laughs> of that money in just two days, which I, I think set a record, another record for the, the, the great, not, I think the greatest change in, in, in wealth in the shortest period of time. Yeah. Like yeah. loss or gain. Yeah. I mean, I think he got it both ways. And currently SBF is under federal prosecutor as a under investigation by federal prosecutors for manipulating the Terra USD coin and Luna cryptocurrencies, basically to keep his own crypto exchange FTX and and his investment fund Alameda Research above water, so he the 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 value of those currencies were being you know, artificially increased or de, and and decreased depending on who's buying and who's selling, so that they could buy they could buy currencies at a, at a certain amount and then sell them for a higher amount and make money to be able to support all of the bad investments that they'd made with Alameda Research. And then later on, you know, like a big a big chunk of this uh, of what SBF has done is taking actual um, uh, individuals account funds that from from the FTX exchange and transferring those like that money from those people into Alameda when Alameda's bad investments weren't panning out. They were like they were uh, injecting money from FTX into Alameda. What's which is why when there was a run on FTX after after uh, crypto prices were coming down and there was a run on FTX, there was there literally did not have people's uh, deposited money. Yeah, uh, they weren't fucking insured by FDIC. The well, you can't insure Sam, an, an organization yeah, like that. I'm, it's crypto. I'm, yeah. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I like it. fucking Sam Bankman created this company that was built on the idea of again reputation. It was built on the idea that anybody can get into it, and the whole premise was that it's making crypto approachable to the average Joe. It's making it so that. Uh, you don't, you don't have to have a fucking Linux set up and I'm, I'm, it's, it's basically where, where Linux is unapproachable and where we, you know, all these other technology related platforms are unapproachable to people. Are you talking about like people that need to set up their own mining rigs? Exactly. Yeah. And, and so what I'm saying is, is that he, he basically took something that, that was like Linux is to most folks. Uh, which is basically unapproachable, even though it's, it's it's not that bad, but it's basically unapproachable to most folks who want to plug and play. And he turned it into something that was plug and play. Yeah, he turned it into a it, Mac. And turned it into a Mac and made it so that it was presented as this stable thing 
that you could you could just drop some money into in the same way that you would buy some some stocks on on uh, um, on uh, any of the trading platforms that that just take your money and they say don't worry about that we'll 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 fuck off with your money and give you a little bit more later same same premise and he and he took it and and turned it into basically a stock exchange for crypto and the premise was that it was stable and reliable and we've got our shit together not like these assholes where it's the wild west this isn't the wild west over here no i mean he was really and it turns out it's entirely the wild west yeah yeah i mean he was really contrasting you know the ftx against binance or, you know, something that was like located, you know, that was basically not run by an American. You know, that's that was his angle. You know, like this is this is the crypto exchange that's run by an American, even though it was located <laughs> yeah. offshore in the Bahamas. It was still <laughs> run by an American. <laughs> Bermuda, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take. Other than that, all these guys are insanely wealthy and that they're guys. I mean, that's another thing they have in common. Something that also groups them together is that just like Bezos and most extremely wealthy people, they all donate to charity. Many of them through their own foundations that are entirely dedicated to philanthropy. Often those foundations serve the same function as Bezos's pledge to give away most of his money and Buffett's and everybody else that has done, you know, that, that, that takes those public pledges. Those pledges change that con- the, whatever the conversation happens to be. So instead of talking about union busting at Amazon or Amazon's post-pandemic layoffs, the news cycle focuses, for, at least for a while, on Bezos's philanthropy. So you know, we, we were talking about this earlier before we recorded, and Jules brought up the example of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And he pointed out that he has no idea what they do, but he knows the name. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a really, that was a really good point because it doesn't even matter what they do. Not, I mean, it does in the, to the extent that there are actual funds that are going to help people that have, that, that need them. And, you know, for, for, for better, you know, for, you know, whether it's effective or not effective, there is something happening. There are funds going somewhere. And, and there, there is an effect that can be looked at. I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted to investigate their financials, which because it's a no, it's a nonprofit organization, you could see how much money comes in, how much money goes out, where is it allocated, what kind of expenses does the organization itself incur versus how much goes toward the causes. These are things that can be looked at. They can be evaluated. But that, but most people don't ever do that. They just know that it exists. They just know about the name. You on know, my I'm, walk over to QFC, each time I'm I'm walking, uh, of course, you have to say you, what QFC is. I have no idea what that uh, is. Yeah, yeah. So, so I live in Seattle. for For those listeners who don't know, uh, I live in the People's Republic of Washington, and in Seattle, uh, I live in downtown Seattle. And I walk over to QFC, which is kind of like your your your. Uh, sort of a low quality grocery store that's owned by a chain that owns a hundred other grocery stores. What's it called? Um, I mean, what's the, what do the letters mean? Uh, quality food. I don't know. Quality food chain. How about quality food chain? I don't know. Quality food, something who, who gives a shit? <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like Smith's. It's like, 
you know, it's the same thing. It's but it's like, not a regular it's, grocery it's, store, though, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's oh, like okay. it's like Kroger. It's oh, like okay. You know, it's the same thing. It's it's owned by the same people who own all the other ones, which is Kroger. Yeah, I I think it's owned by I think it is owned by Kroger. Yeah. Um, or the other one, like there's two who own all of them in all the United States. Uh, anyway, I'm walking, I'm walking over to QFC to get some fucking discount chicken, uh, at least once a week. And as I'm walking there, I walk past the Is Bill discount and- chicken just code for dumpster diving? <laughs> <laughs> no, usually you go on like a Saturday or a Sunday and that's, and that's when the, the, the chicken is real cheap. It's like the manager's special or something. Listen, are you not poor enough? Do you need to be more poor to not? I, I think you need to be more poor to know when the discounts are. Don't it's always on the weekends. Me. Don't wealth shame me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm walking over at least once a week and uh, I literally walk past the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and they have you know i mean it's 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 very well put together it's very fancy looking and it it has the most generic inspirational phrases that are on the walls and they're and you you can see like there's there's some kind of philanthropy going on and they say you know be yourself and do good things or all all sorts of generic feel good phrases and i still have no idea what they do like you, you look in and they, and they're, they're making a whole fucking marketing thing of it in the windows and in the, in the, in the, in the building. And it's still totally unclear what, what is going on in this place. It, it really does look like some kind of a, a fucking money laundering shell operation. A where, really fancy one. Where it's a really fancy one. If you were to walk in and, and in, into a, into a corner store and they had a couple of things on the shelves that had had dust on them from 10 years ago, you'd think clearly this is not what they really do for money here. And that's kind of the feeling that I get with this, except it looks really nice. And that is an extraordinary amount of money, 30 billion pounds. Why is it so important to you to give back? Well, I'm very lucky that um, Microsoft was successful and now my wife and I have the opportunity to try and use that money uh, to help uh, those most in need. And so we picked global health, uh, getting rid of these diseases uh, like malaria and many others. Yeah. Uh, so that's now my, my full-time work. Of that, of, of the things that you've picked and you've been working on, Bill, for the last few years, what do you think's been the area that you've had the most traction, you've made the biggest difference? Well, the, the most phenomenal thing is that uh, we had a goal of reducing the number of children who die. And when we got started, it was about 10%, over 13 million uh, children under five dying each year. And now we've got that down below 6 million. Wow. And so it's been cut in half. So it's still 6 million too many. Quite. Uh, And, you know, we have a clear plan to get it down to 3 million uh, by 2030. That must fail pretty good to know that with all your life work that you, you you've achieved that i mean that's extraordinary well the field is 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 making progress and it's great to go when i'm in africa and i can see that you know less kids are there in the hospital mm-hmm. and that uh, uh parents are actually choosing to have less kids because now they know uh that most of their kids will will survive into adulthood yeah. so it's making everything 
more solvable. Well, something that you hate so. Yeah, you, you Fuck can't. Fuck you, you can't, Bill. You can't argue with those with the with the results, though. I mean, he obviously. I mean, it's yeah. doing something, but though you know, there's also. You know, it might sound like incredibly cynical for me to say this, and I'm kind of laughing because the 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 screen that we that I just paused the video on, it's the old Windows background from like Windows XP <laughs> <laughs> on the screen behind the the couch where he's getting inter- where Bill Gates is getting interviewed. Um, it, it's it, it's hard to argue with with those kind of effects, and and it's great. You know, it's 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 you you can't deny that it's fantastic that that many children are no longer dying from malaria. That's awesome. Yeah, they it's changed. I'm sure it's changed so many things. I mean, he mentioned one thing that I mean, these are unsubstantiated as far claims as far as I'm concerned, because I haven't I haven't looked at any of it myself. He can say whatever he wants on some morning show in Australia. But the you know, I I don't I don't know if people are having fewer children because more of their kids are, are have a better chance of living into adulthood. That's I have no idea if that's actually true, but yeah, I effects like that seem don't seem unreasonable at the least, you know, on face value. The one thing that it's that it's done, though, is I, again, you know, how do you how do you talk about this without sounding super cynical? What we what we're no longer doing or what we no longer remember are all of the antitrust lawsuits that Microsoft uh, were filed against Microsoft by the federal government. We're not we're not we're not reading stories about how they how Microsoft crushed competitors. I mean, nobody remembers how the the lawsuits that were um, that were filed by Netscape Navigator to make sure that the browser uh, would be able to be included on Windows machines because Windows didn't want to have any other browsers. They just wanted Internet Explorer. Nobody remembers any of that stuff. And. I think part of the way the reason that we don't remember it or at least don't associate Bill Gates with the ruthlessness that he was known for in the 90s as as the CEO of Microsoft is because of the reputation laundering from the foundation. I'm not saying that necessarily that that was that's even what his motivation is now. I think that there's such that's so far in the rearview mirror that he's not doing that anymore. At, at at this point, at 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 this point, it's all on fucking cruise control here. Well, I, mean, I, he, I think he, you're the, right. I think that I mean, he he is definitely like sailing off into retirement, and this is the legacy he wants to leave behind, which is not at all different from the the legacy that people like the Rockefellers or Carnegie wanted to leave behind after they were gone. I mean, there's a reason why we have Rockefeller Center. There's a reason why we have Carnegie Hall. And it's because they didn't want their legacy to be breaking strikes. They didn't want their legacy to be shooting strikers. You know, they, they, they didn't want it to be a, a, a railroad baron. And these are these are the most egregious things. I, I mean, we could even look at Bezos and and the the examples of the employees pissing in bottles because they don't get a fucking break and yada yada yada. But in all of the above, I think what is easy to sail past when we're looking at this from from if we were to look at this from a, a somewhat liberal point of view of uh, what kind of things would be good things to do with these systems. That sort of sails past the assumption of these systems existing, which sails past why the fuck are these dickheads in this position to have these billions of dollars to do this kind of 
charity and quote giving back why did they have something to give back in the first place or at least so is, much to give back or so much these are, these are questions all right and you know i don't mean i don't mean to be balls deep in marxism here but i the fact is, he does. He ever. He, he definitely. He he is. He is <laughs> all the way down to to the base, dipped into Marxism. <laughs> but but the fact is that you cannot have the acquisition of wealth concentrated in the hands of few unless other people are not having their wealth that is being produced from their labor power. I mean you. It's it's just it has a to come from somewhere. Fact. It has to fucking come from somewhere. Yeah. And the only way that Bezos and Musk and all these other people have such wealth or have any wealth at all is not because they're working billions of times more hard or effectively or smarter than the average worker in that same company. No. It is because those workers of those companies are not getting the income that is being generated or the wealth that is being generated from their activities. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's just simple fucking math, you know? All right. So that, that brings us back around to SBF for a minute. Other than helping to run his own businesses into the ground, SBF has also been a, one of the loudest voices advocating for a particular school of philanthropy called effective altruism. Build and should build. In the end, my goal is to do as much good as I can for the world. I, I'm part of an effective altruism community. Basically, it's a group of people looking to try and figure out if you want to maximize the amount of good you do, maximize the positive impact that you can have on the world. What does that imply? What does that mean you should do with your life? And I think it sort of grew out of like, here's a group of charities, you're going to donate $100, which will save the most lives, right? Which saves the most lives per dollar donated. Um, and, you know, it's centered on a bunch of really great developing world health charities. Uh, things like, you know, uh, the Anti-Malaria Foundation, Systemiosis Control, um, and some direct transfer charities to uh, really poor areas of, of the world. And like, like, you know, Give Directly is one there. And Give will serve the pioneer of evaluating these charities, comparing them, and trying to figure out, you know, how you can save as many people um, with, with your money as you can. You know, since, since the effective altruism movement has has broadened out to um, include a lot of different ways. Again, with the malaria, why are they all going for the malaria? I mean, they should just let Bill and Melinda Gates do the malaria and do something else. Why is everybody going for malaria? I think it's possibly because it's the most visible and the most exotic. Uh, exotic I, I, from the point I of view think of, it's, of it's, the United it's, States. It's also one of the most easily solvable. Because hanging fruit. Generally, the solution for malaria is mosquito nets. You could order those on Amazon. You should talk to Jeff, Jeff Bezos. See, you were, you get Amazon, <laughs> you, you get Bezos and Gates together, you solve malaria. Have one of those uh, drones fly him in. <laughs> D delivered from Amazon. The wealthiest person in crypto is Sam Bankman-Fried. At 29 years old, he's amassed a net worth estimated to be over $26 billion, according to Forbes. Owing to the success of his crypto exchange FTX and trading firm Alameda Research. Yet the MIT grad and son of two Stanford law professors is known for his 
frugal college dorm-esque lifestyle, living with roommates, sleeping on a beanbag in his office, and his belief in effective altruism, saying most of his money gets reinvested into his businesses and the rest will eventually be given away to his preferred altruistic causes. Essentially, effective altruists separate themselves from other philanthropists by claiming to use science and reason, that's the effective part, to determine what would benefit the most people. This is how the movement describes itself on EffectiveAltruism.org. Effective altruism hold on, is hold a on, project... Hold on. And don't read it like a newscaster. Don't use your TikTok voice. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I, I, I won't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't listen to your TikToks because every time I listen to them, I feel like I should be recording the show. And then I'm just like, <laughs> really? why is he talking like that? Like, he, need, he needs me sitting there telling him, no, 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 don't try to talk like, like you're doing a news report. He really needs that reminder. I, I feel like, I, you know what I need to do? I need to start doing you some need to duets produce my TikToks? with your TikToks. <laughs> Where yeah. you roast my TikToks? I need to roast your TikToks. It's true. You, you, can, you can just duet them. I have duets open all the time. Essentially, effective altruists separate themselves from other philanthropists by claiming to use science and reason, that's the effective part, to determine what would benefit the most people. This is how the movement describes itself on EffectiveAltruism.org. Effective altruism is a project that aims to find the best ways to help others and put them into practice. It's both a research field, which aims to identify the world's most pressing problems and the best solutions to them, and a practical community that aims to use those findings to do good. This project matters because, while that many sounds pretty attempts, Marxist so far. I know, right? Theory and like, praxis. I mean, f fuck, uh, all we need now is to have a vanguard party, and we're all set. <laughs> This project matters because, while many attempts to do good fail, some are enormously effective. For instance, some charities help 100 or even 1,000 times as many people as others when given the same amount of resources. This means that by thinking carefully about the best ways to help, we can do far more to tackle the world's biggest problems. Effective altruism was formalized by scholars at Oxford University, but now, but has now spread around the world and is being applied by tens of thousands of people in more than 70 countries. People inspired by effective altruism have worked on projects that range from funding the distribution of 200 million malaria nets. There we again, go again. The malaria. The fucking malaria. To academic research on the future of AI. Oh to yeah, a little bit more about that later. Yeah, for sure to campaigning for policies to prevent the next pandemic. They're not united by any particular solution to the world's problems, e.g. not a fucking ideology or a theory that means anything, but by a way of thinking. They try to find unusually good ways of helping. We're thinking outside the box. Unusually good ways of helping, such as a given amount of effort goes such such that a given amount of effort goes an unusually long way. I mean, this is just this is just some fucking creative writing nonsense that was phoned in at the eleventh hour. It, it is it is broad strokes accurate though, and in, in generalities, it is it is fairly accurate, or at least it's it's uh it, it's cohesive with what they talk about in other places, or and and especially what the proponents talk about. But there are some there are some aspects though that this this breakdown really doesn't acknowledge. My favorite comedian Doug Stanhope has a bit where he talks about auditing your charities 
and he's he spends five minutes roasting the occupy movement when that was a thing for for a bunch of people stinking up a park and 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 then says uh that that he he used his dead mother's credit card to buy him and his friends a whole bunch of things for ten thousand dollars uh, right after she died and and he said i fucked those banks up a lot better than you guys did stinking up a park <laughs> and he's not entirely wrong because i do think that there is a legitimate criticism of the nonprofit industry and it is a fucking industry that that takes these liberal ideas of utilizing capitalism for good and you you pour your money into this and you know run around a city park for 10 miles and then give your money to some charity that does fuck all with it and in 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 all reality there are some really effective ways that you could spend your time and your effort and your money See, my, that, my work is done. Really I, was, I was trying to convert Jules to becoming an effective altruist, and I did it. All he had to do was read. <laughs> he just had to read the about section from the website. That was that was all he needed. He was so close to the edge that it, it just. I just had to breathe hard on it on him, and he he tipped right over. <laughs> that part about the best ways to help that they talked about in the, in their description is really what they hope distinguishes effective altruism from other types of charitable giving. They 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 wanted they want to separate themselves from other philanthropic efforts by focusing on the things that are are really going to have the desired effect or have the greatest effect that that, that is desired. And to do all that, they 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 spend a lot of time researching. They spend a lot of time, you know, like discussing these things, arguing with each other. That those things really do happen. I, I I really I do think that this is an earnest effort. One of the ways that they go about doing this is that EA breaks all the challenges that people face across the world, or anything that they're trying to evaluate, any cause or situation. They break it down essentially into units of well-being. And so if you if you think about a unit of well-being the way that they would describe it is that there is a um there's a certain amount of well-being that an individual has when they're just living a regular life going to a job you know they have a family they have bills they have all these things but th there's no great uh uh impacts that that cause suffering to them they're pretty much just you know you just living their lives they have the normal challenges and you know, sometimes they might get in a little bit over their head and it takes them a while to pay off debts or, you know, whatever, but nothing really extreme and certainly nothing life-threatening. That person would be considered to say have a hundred units of well-being. You know, that's what's one way of thinking about it. I've never heard this expression of units of well-being, but they they do see it as a as an accumulation of something, this idea of well-being. Versus someone who lives in, you know, maybe in incredibly impoverished conditions in a country that has uh, a, a very low average uh, uh, level of income. And, you know, they might be facing uh, uh, problems with contaminated water. They might have, there might be a great deal of violence or, you know, political unrest in their country to the extent that people's lives are in danger. Uh, the, like this, this person would have a much lower stack of well-being. 
So if I'm going, you know, if I'm going to devote resources to to something, I mean, whether it's going to be education for a lower income person in the United States to uh, to increase to improve their circumstances, or to uh, do something that's going to uh, possibly impact this, you know, a village's water supply somewhere in somewhere in the world that has contaminated water, then my, you know, if I the same amount of money might go much much farther if I devote it to that place in in this in this developing nation. That is the kind of math that effective altruists are doing. So it's really showing its utilitarian roots here, which it has. And and in utilitarianism, things can be broken down into something called utils, and a util is base is measuring how much utility an action has. Yeah, yeah. All right. So well, I'm. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Well, when we're examining this again, not to get too fucking Marxist about this. And by the way, I'm not a Marxist. Uh, <laughs> I mean, contrary to popular belief. I'm neither Marxist nor anarchist per se, but definitely farther left than than the usual. Uh, the what we're seeing here does strike at some of the Marxist fucking arguments, which were were primarily utilitarian. I mean, he he obviously talked about the labor theory of value, and he he talked about things in a in a very pragmatic way to the degree that he simplified his understanding of history to to be all in relation to the means of production and that culture and human experience instead of being this this uh, um, heroic man view of historical development was this this view of historical development that culture and belief systems change when the technology surrounding the means of production changes and that everything surrounds the means of production in in a really fundamentalist kind of a way. Effective altruism seems to be in opposition because we literally have individuals or heroic men who are influencing outcomes. This is definitely taking the heroic man argument of it. But but I guess what I'm saying is that this I, I well Marx and 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 his lot called it scientific socialism because they had this idea of of economics and human systems as as being able to be distilled in such an objective way that you can have a science about it. And while sure we can study it like a science without without a doubt, no argument for me. We have to you know be a little bit fast and loose about it to to make it make sense because this much like that sort of dry search for objectivity in order to have a uncontestable argument comes out to be inhuman because you're trying to take human systems and make them into something that is mechanical. And the reality is that, yeah, you can predict all sorts of things on a macro level for sure. And, and you can observe things over, over time in a very scientific way without a doubt. But when you're forcing this, this ideal of objectivity onto hey, what Jules, is... I hate to cut you off, but where are you going with this? Oh, <laughs> where I'm going with this is that the, the idea of effective altruism, much like some of the utilitarianism of, of Marxism, ends up turning 
people into this dehumanized unit because it's trying so fucking hard to make an objective understanding of what we should do as people rather than really trying to take it from a human point of view. To wrap their heads around incredibly complicated things, they they reduce them down to uh, an ineffective altruism. They reduce them down into some simple thought experiments. And one of the most common that I'm sure a lot of people listening have heard of is the trolley problem. And Jules, do you know what that is? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Come on. All right. Come on. Come on. He, all right. So he's going to explain it to us. All right. So the idea is that it's it's a simplification of a moralistic problem where you, in, in various formations, will have to choose between changing the tracks of a trolley or a train, if you will, uh, from one track to another. And no matter which choice you make, there will be some kind of a negative consequence. And if you change, the, if you take an action, the, the original trolley, trolley problem is that if you take an action, you will kill fewer people who are tied up on the tracks, uh, like uh, some sort of dastardly Dan with, with a curly mustache has tied them up. Uh, and and you'll, you'll kill, kill fewer people by changing the thing, but you have to take an action to do that, and your action will still nevertheless kill one or more people, but fewer people. Or if you do nothing, more people will be killed. And then the trolley problem is transformed into different variances to to give a simplified example of different moralistic more uh different moral questions like well what if on the one track was a family member and everybody else on the other track was people that you don't know or what if and and on and on and on and and it's it's basically a way to make simple what is otherwise usually filled with context and remove the context in order to make moralistic choices in a utilitarian way. Jules, as usual, gives an explanation with many words when a few would do. <laughs> <laughs> Until I asked him if he, under, if he already knew about it, my explanation was going to be, so there's an out-of-control train car, and there's a split in the track up ahead and a lever. On one side of the track is three people, and the other side is five. You have the chance to flip the track... To make sure that only three people die instead of five. Oh, that's a much shorter way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes they reduce it to one person on the track versus five or something like that. But either way, you're, you're forced to make this decision about, you know, what, what, is, what is worse in this situation? And, you know, what, what would the, the net amount of suffering be versus in one scenario versus the other? That's one of the things they do. So obviously you can see how they can expand this into, into coming up with, you know, we're going to spend our money in this place because we're going to have, we're going to, it's going to all, it's going to more effectively save lives than in this other place. All right. But this also leads to some, you know, th this type of thinking also like Jules was talking about when he was talking about Marxism and, and this dehumanizing aspect, it can lead us to some incredibly grotesque places. And one of the, one of the problems that has also, uh, or thought experiments that's also discussed, is this organ donor problem. Do, do you know this one? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to let you explain it because I use too many words. All right. So, <laughs> the <laughs> see, now is the challenge. I better not use very many words. The, the organ donor problem is a scenario where a few guys need organs. 
They, you know, they kidney, liver, lungs, whatever. You know, if they don't get these organs, they're going to die in a certain amount of time. Their doctor knows about a guy, just a regular guy. He's not, you know, he, he's not going to die anytime soon or anything like that. He's, he's going to probably live an entirely normal life. In fact, we can assume that he will. The doctor, because he is doing the least harm, goes out and, you know, does the sort of most dangerous game episode and hunts this guy down, harvests his organs, and then saves these four guys' lives. Using that same kind of thinking, he, he has done the, the moral thing. He has caused the least amount of harm and, and, and the result of his actions has produced the greatest amount of well-being. If he did nothing, four people would die. If he killed this guy, those four people live and only one person dies. So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And if and you're much an absolute like a trolley ghoul, pro- if, you're, if you're a complete <laughs> ghoul, it makes sense. But obviously, this is a completely repulsive thing to even think about. But that's that type of thinking allows this to make to be a sensible position to have that it's okay. And to in kill. both cases, and and, and you know, so th- this is uh, the utilitarian aspect of effective altruism is also tied closely to this other kind of philosophy called consequentialism, which you can you know I, I defend anybody who studies philosophy and takes this stuff more seriously than I do. Or if I don't offend them, they're probably going to argue with me. Consequentialism <laughs> is effectively the ends justify the means. So you could be you you could be absolutely draconian in the way that 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 you that you live your life and treat the people that you have power over, and as long as the the ends are met and you know the the there is a greater amount of well being than suffering as a result of your actions, it doesn't matter. Hey, you know, there, there was, there's a very nice Italian who wrote a letter to a prince once about that. That's Machiavellian, not just, not draconian. Oh, okay. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I almost said Machiavellian. Um, so, you know, incidentally, because, you know, to just by way of, descri- of describing an actual incident of something completely ghoulish and inhuman that was developed by a utilitarian, the panopticon which is the concept prison where all the cells face in, uh, in toward an interior yard. And in that interior yard is a single guard tower. This guard tower is, is manned by one guard and a, a lighthouse style spotlight that is constantly re- uh, rotating. So basically when you're looking at this thing, you either see nothing but darkness if the light's facing away from you, or you see nothing but this blinding bright white light facing at you, which means you still can't see this this guard that's in the tower. So if you're the prisoner, uh, then you pro- you you the expectation is that you won't have any idea whether you're currently being watched or not, and that's going to affect your behavior because you're going to eventually assume at least this is the idea that you were always being watched, which means you're always going to be behaving yourself because you don't want to get caught doing something. Now you don't know whether the guard's looking at you because you can never see this person. So just because the lights on you doesn't mean the guard isn't looking the other way or off to the side and watching a different prisoner. You just never know. If I've learned anything from Foucault, it's that we're already in a prison, whether the light's on us or not. Yeah, well, th- this whole idea before Foucault was developed by a famous utilitarian and founder, one of the, you know, one of the two founders of this whole school of philosophy named Jeremy Bentham. You know, the other guy is a guy named John Stuart Mill, and I don't know if he developed anything ghoulish. I don't remember enough about him. 
Another effective altruist, Peter Thiel, who is the, the, the billionaire backer for J.D. Vance, who just won his election, and a former business partner also of, uh, in PayPal with Elon Musk, he's, he's basically created the digital version of this already. So aside from Foucault's idea that, you know, in, in a sense, we are all living in a panopticon, which that was in the 80s he was talking about that, wasn't he? I think it was a little bit before, but was it could it before, have been the 80s. But yeah, anyway, he's a fairly recent philosopher. He, uh, he hasn't been dead very long. Peter Thiel basically created this, though. He actually did this with digital surveillance, with his company Palantir, this surveillance tech company that works with Israelis and basically whoever wants to crack down on dissidents in their country. Another main feature of, of, of effective, another main feature of effective altruism, and also part of this effective side of things, is that it's often seen to be better to earn a lot of money and then donate some of it than to donate your time. Because again, your money might go much, much further than the amount of time that you, that you could donate towards something or the, the, the type of expertise you might have. And, you know, the, like, for example, you might be, have expertise in, in computer science and you're, you're one of your causes is going to be, you know, to, I'll bring it back up, clean water. You don't know anything about about hydrology. You don't know anything about municipal water or civil engineering or anything like that. You don't know how to do any of those things. So any time you donate is going to be, a, you know, for the mo for the most part, largely unskilled labor. Yeah. But if you can make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year or even a hundred thousand dollars a year with your computer science background, doing whatever job you would be doing. You could donate a sizable portion of that money towards these causes and fund projects that are staffed by people who do know about them. This is the effect of altruism mathematics going on. This is how they calculate these things. So just by way of an example, this is an article in Time. When British doctor Greg Lewis felt called to contribute more to the world, he looked into leaving the UK to serve less fortunate patients. That seemed a better way to do good than working in a pristine hospital. But when he crunched the numbers, they, they told a different story. By treating patients in a poor country, he calculated he might save four lives per year. By choosing a specialty at home and working toward an annual salary, an annual salary of $200,000, he could donate up to half to a charity providing anti-malarial bed nets. Again with the malaria. God damn it. Like it's, it's, it's like it's the only thing that is the problem on earth. It, it, you know, it might be the only thing that they're actually effective at addressing. <laughs> <laughs> Help stop infection in the first place and saving dozens of lives per year. As William... Ma Ma this fucking guy. Uh, as William McCaskill explains in his forthcoming book, Doing Good Better, which which sounds like the 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 Building Back Better program. We're like, it's just words that don't technically they go together, but they sound fucking wrong when you put them together like that in that order. Anyway, it was a title written by an editor, I'm sure. Yeah. Doing good better, effective altruism and how you can make a difference. Lewis chose and chose to earn in order to give. So that's an effective altruist description of how that works. This is a. Uh... This is journalist Oliver Bulla uh, talking about his perspective on these things. 
Do you want to explain what it is very quickly? Well, effective altruism is like a totally banal concept, which is that if you are going to do good, you should think about the, the most effective way to do good, right? It's totally banal and obvious, but it has weirdly become this sort of secular religion, particularly in sort of among tech people that essentially excuses however you accumulate, accumulate your wealth, because it, if as long as you're going to do good with it, it doesn't matter how much harm you've done in accumulating it. Mm. There's this idea that that, that you have a small number of clever people who realise what the problem is and a large number of stupid people who, who are just too thick to realise what the problem is. That I don't think that's true. I think what we have is a large number of people who realise that the, the system's whack, but it's so profitable that who cares? And there's this, this line from, I think it was the head of the US operations of Deutsche Bank, who before the 2007-8 financial crisis, and after when asked what their, you know, what their strategy had been, it was to keep dancing but stand near the door. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Because, you know, the party is still fun. You know, there's still bonuses to be earned. It's not, you know, we know it's going to collapse, but right now, who cares? Because look, the money's flowing. And, and that's the challenge is, is, you know, is how do you, how do you somehow persuade people that while the money's flowing, that they should turn the tap off? SBF is the perfect example of this calculated career planning because the guy literally had an encounter with Will Muscaskill, the one of the founders or at least current leaders of effective altruism. Where at, at some point in the past, he had had this conversation and McCaskill told him that it would be better for him to earn a lot of money for his cause, which for for SBF was animal welfare, than to volunteer because SBF didn't know anything about animals. Now we can sit with that for a second and we can think like, well, what, like what about the value of McCaskill's action here and in terms of effective altruism and creating the, the greatest amount of well-being? Because that in that moment, he advised SBF to earn a lot of money, which he knew he was going to donate to these causes and maybe even funneling through the, the, the organizations that were affiliated with effective altruism. Or go volunteer. If he'd volunteer, effective altruism wouldn't have gotten as much money. And he would have never become this financier. He would have never founded FTX. He would have never done any of these things. He would have never committed fraud or done all, of, all these other things that he's, he's <laughs> possibly guilty of doing. Maybe he wouldn't be in prison now. Think of how many people would be better off if Sam Bankman Freed had just gone and volunteered and worked with animals. Well... If if Hitler had just been accepted into the Art Institute in... Have you seen that guy's paintings? Come on, that would have never happened. I'm, I'm not talking about a fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs> McCaskill and the rest of the effective altruists typically do not always agree with about which causes deserve the most attention. I mean, that's really part of it is that, and I mean, you, you can consider that healthy as far as an organization goes that there, there is generally not consensus. So there, there tends to be, uh, from what I've seen, a lot of very lively debate about these issues. Most of it is good natured. I mean, I'm not, I'm not villainizing these people, but something they almost do always agree about. And maybe I am going to villainize them, villainize them a little bit here is that the solutions that they land on are always funded by charitable donations. They never propose solutions to these social, uh, they never propose political solutions to any of these problems. And so unsurprisingly, there's also a strong libertarian streak in effective altruism. And also unsurprisingly, most of these projects that EA focuses on don't ever touch the social and political structures that cause the problems in the first place. Now, I appreciate that in a lot of places, you can't touch on these 
the actual causes to the problems. If you're dealing with uh, malaria in the Congo, you're not going to fix the problems with warlords. That's not something that that it, that any number of private uh, private donors are going to be able to address. But that's that that really just touches also brings us right to the limitation of the entire project. You can't address these systemic causes because you're just a couple of private people. And that's something that they they never there seems to be this insane amount of hubris involved in all of this in all of this planning that is done in all the arguing that gets done about the most effective causes and the most effective way to address these issues. They they always manage to avoid anything that is going to make this a government operation. This this assumption, the whole thing is based on an assumption that is so fucking far out in orbit that it is not even on the fucking ground where the thing is happening, where the 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 stacks of assumptions to get to effective altruism require first capitalism and uh, other exit institutions. Cool beans. No fucking problem. And by the way, we're going to utilize those institutions and make loads and loads and loads and loads of money. That's all assumed. And that all of this is going to concentrate wealth and power as zero problem. That's not the fucking problem. The fact that you can concentrate this money and wealth and power. And uh, the fact that certain people who are not elected in any way and have no democratic oversight in any way in in these these types of decisions are going to make the decisions that they think although they're it's through the lens of what they interpret to be scientific or or some kind of objective approach or or or, or some such they think that they have not only the right but the obligation the moral obligation to be donating money the only remaining question this is why we're so far into orbit with these fucking assumptions is that all of that shit's assumed of course they do of course they are of course this is the case the only remaining question is how are they going to launder their reputation with their reputation with money that's the only remaining question and, and, even and they, if, they even turn if it into a fucking philosophy about it. Even if you assume that everybody involved is, you know, is above board, even if they're not doing reputation laundering, the one thing that they are all doing is absolutely never questioning the system that put them in this position in the first place to be able to donate this money. Nothing they're doing threatens their, their position of privilege and power. Or even the global hegemony that makes it so that some fucking mosquito nets can save millions of lives. And and you know the uh, the you know there there are plenty of people because you know I I hear this criticism in my own head because I'm trying to be to be pretty fair about all this. I'm not I'm not demonizing anybody. I'm also not trying to straw man any of them and and you know and and make it seem like effective altruism is is one is a caricature of what it actually is. There are plenty of people that are involved in the organization that are not incredibly wealthy. You know, even even uh, Will McCaskill doesn't seem to be an incredibly wealthy person. This is somebody who yeah, he does come from some privilege, of course. But he's a doctor of, he's a, I don't even know if he's a doctor. I think he's a doctor of philosophy, but 
you know, this is not somebody, he's not running a hedge fund. He's not a tech CEO. He's not anything like that. He's not a founder or something like that. And he's, he sure as hell isn't some like tech disruptor. You know, the, <laughs> he's, he's a guy who has, you know, he has more money than I do, I'm sure. But it's not, it's not, he's not a billionaire. His level of privilege and, and, and position is also not getting threatened. And at the same time, He's arguing for a state of things that will make it sure, make sure that none of his friends' positions of power, you know, one of his friends being Elon Musk, who are they're at least close acquaintances, will never have their positions threatened. You know, that that's 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 the thing that doesn't happen with effective altruism. They're somehow completely blind to any answers that that involve changing their status. What they're what they're philosophizing. What they're arguing about is what we should do with the scraps off of the table of the king. Yes. But not That's what... A, that is exactly what but, they're talking but, about. But not the fact that there's a fucking king in the first place. Right. Uh, or, as we've recently observed, that the emperor has no fucking clothes. That I think, I, these I, I people think we are not, successfully beat this one to death right now at this point. I, we've definitely driven the nails <laughs> on. But... You know, to give them credit, they do have a section on their site where they address they address the idea that there is a lack of support for systemic problems, uh, you know, inherent in effective altruism, or at least that there's criticism that there's 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 such a lack. So they devoted a section to the types of systemic problems that they do address, but the, but even then, the the the. The blindness is just is so striking. The things that they talk about are improving telecommunications infrastructure in low and middle income countries. That to them is a systemic problem. For, right? for fuck's sake, China it. has basically purchased the continent of Ac Africa with that same concept. They're, they're not even describing what a systemic with the, with problem their, with actually is. With their infrastructure is. investments. They're not even describing accurately what a systemic problem is. You know, another one is cannabis policy. Okay, they want more cannabis. I mean, this is how you know that this is a libertarian initiative. <laughs> because it is all about because the next one. Hey, uh, our boy it, from New Mexico, we got we got to rep. We got to rep the old governor. The the next one is is reforming <laughs> federal tax the federal tax code. I mean, th this is like they're pulling these basically from the from the old libertarian platform. Probably not the current one, but the old one. They're getting them directly from this, you know. So their re their reforms that they propose are basically reducing taxes and moving away from income taxes towards taxes based more on sales. That is the libertarian platform from the nineties. Can, can I finish? Can I finish? Can I finish? That he wasn't a libertarian. What? That was Ross Perot. He wasn't a libertarian. He was just a business guy. What's the fucking difference? Well, yeah, but he was he was he wasn't running on the libertarian ticket ticket. I think it was like Bill Weld that year or something like that. Well, wasn't he? But he he came pretty goddamn close to actually competing against uh, uh, fucking Billy Boy and and the other one. Well, I mean, he's probably the reason that George George H W lost that election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then he did. For what it's worth, he did mysteriously drop out halfway through. Oh yeah, so. I think to wrap all this up, I want to like, I think everybody should be reminded that we allow the system to exist as it is. This is something that, that, that we enable. 
You know, the billionaires, like as an entire class of, of an economic class, they exist basically at our pleasure, you know, simply because enough people have, don't have a problem with the, that, that type of accumulation of wealth. This isn't, this isn't a natural thing. This is a result of the system that we live in and that, that we participate in, you know, that the, the uh, billionaires are a product of this system. And it, it, we think it's bad now when we, when we're dealing with, you know, somebody like Musk who recently had $200 billion or just over $200 billion. I mean, I think it's a lot less now, but what, you know, what, what's going to happen when we have our first trillionaire and we still have people starving to death, for, you know, because of lack of food. And we still have people living with contaminated water. And we're still looking, we're still going to, are we still going to be looking to, for, for charity and philanthropy to, to address these problems? I think there's, there, there is a point that we're, we're not going to be able to tolerate this anymore. I, I'm not sure why we've tolerated it to this point. I'm not sure why we're even okay with people having $500 million, let alone a billion, let alone 20 billion or a hundred billion. I, I think that, there, there is this idea that that floats around and has floated around for a very long time that the truth will set you free, and and I remember I don't know how many years ago when I had this notion in my own brain rattling around that if people just knew whatever, as as I had researched more and more about the imperialism of the United States over the years and the history of of the the U.S. state, and as I researched more about uh, economics and and how all of this works uh, in in very rudimentary terms and then more complex later, and as I understood the the sense and significance of the modern nation state, the more the more that I looked into these these types of questions, I thought, oh, well, if, if people just knew what I knew, if they knew how many CIA operations there were that were overthrowing democratically elected leaders, if they, if they just knew, and I, I quickly came, I mean, not to sound too fucking cynical here, but I, I quickly came to realize before I was even fucking out of high school that, oh shit, it's, it's not the truth will set you free. The fact is there are a number of conditions that are not just material. So if we, if we look at from the, the Marxist or the, or the, or the, uh, effective altruist point of view that is, that is so strictly utilitarian, we can see everything through the lens of humans as cogs in a machine and equally solved as being cogs in the machine. Yeah. The only thing you have to do is increase well-being, and everything will be fine. And then, then, and then that's it. That doesn't fucking answer the question. But at the same time, there is a component of culture that is involved that, that is not able to be ignored. It doesn't come about by itself. It, it, it is, you know, I mean, uh, we can look in, in the sixties with the, uh, 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 in, in France, in, 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 in Paris. Fucking France. Uh, come on. Sorry. Are we past damn this? It. <laughs> in, I meant to say France. And Paris, <laughs> where we have one of one of my favorites, uh, Guy Debord, uh, and you had the uh, the Situationists who were effectively describing this this bizarre culture of a an imitation of reality that we live in in consumerist culture, uh, where 
I think that if we examine all of these different questions independently and we try to get one fucking solution, we're not going to get it. But I do think that the there is an answer in people don't see the whole fucking picture because that is on purpose. That That is absolutely deliberate where we have Christian nationalists trying to overtake government and culture and we have uh, all sorts of other different ideologies trying to move their way into the social sphere. But these social strata are not accidental. They didn't just come about by by natural formation. So hold on, let me let me let me cut into your very long monologue here and and ask you, so you were talking about how there was a time when you thought if people had the you know just certain amount of information or the right information, then they would change their way the way that they looked at things. And now you're talking about how people are, or how these circumstances are contrived, and where are we heading? It's a combination of both uh, our our current circumstance. How how did we get here? How did we how did we get to a circumstance where we? How can we accept billionaires, their very existence, and the fact that they control so much and have such overwhelming power and concentration of of wealth comes about both because culturally we have a hegemony that is held by a number of actors, Christian nationalists and others. And those people who hold that hegemony culturally in terms of how we view the world, not what they know, what they know isn't necessarily what it's all about. You can know all the things you want, but what they believe is that this is how it's always been. And this is how it's always going to be with different minor variations. And I think it's that idea of belief that has had so much influence over us accepting this. I don't disagree with your explanation, but I, I don't know if we can come up with a singular explanation that's going to fit the entire society. No, not at all. I'm not, not a singular explanation. One thing that I know for sure is that we, if we assume that it's natural, then we'll de- we're definitely going to be much more likely to turn our, to turn away from it and focus on other things. But if we assume that it is some sort of a malignant aberration that we simply need to stamp out, then we're going to pay more attention to it. And the and no amount of distraction by 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 popular culture or you know our or consumerism is going to distract us from it. You know the it is but we I think the first thing that is necessary to change these circumstances is we have to view the existence of billionaires as an aberration. That it is something that it is a, that the the fact that they're that people are allowed to accumulate such wealth, we have to view it as a mistake, and we have to view it as an error, an error that we have the power to correct. And this is this is the worldview. This is the worldview that that we're discussing. I mean, the the whole reason yeah, you, why you're doing a more descriptive, and I'm doing a more prescriptive. You know, like I'm not really yeah. interested in describing how we got here because I mean, we can do a post mortem after we get rid of billionaires. And and figure out how to avoid the situation happening again. But otherwise, I think we, you know, I I actually really do think that there is a hazard involved in even engaging in that in that kind of evaluation of, you know, the the the, where we where we wonder, 
the, um, you know, we spend all of our time wondering how it got this way. It didn't used to be so bad. And, you know, this is kind of the lamentation of a couple of old guys in rocking chairs on a front porch, you know, like what, <laughs> what's going on with the kids today or something like that. And I think that the explanation is, is it is, there's a complicated version, but then there's also a very simple version, which like you said, it is contrived. It is the, this, this is the long-term result of a project that has been in existence, not necessarily a concerted effort. This is a conspiracy by a, some, by a, con, a consortium or a cabal or anything like that. But it is a concerted, a concerted effort by people with wealth to make it more, make it easier for them to maintain that wealth. The byproduct of that, it is, it makes it easier for other people to, once acquiring wealth, also maintain their wealth, and then so on and so forth. All of these people are acting out of, individually out of self-interest, but with a similar goal. So we end up chipping away at these legal protections that, that antitrust laws, tax, you know, ta- uh, various taxes, and over the years to, to finally get into ourselves into a circumstance now where we have a tax code full of loopholes it allows you to offshore your money it allows you to do things like we were talking about before that musk does and other and and basically every extremely wealthy person where they they essentially live on loans and you know using using shares that they own as collateral and which means the chi- that they the never chief art- the chief art in the world is is nothing more than assets for I mean, billionaires in order to make it so that it's not taxable assets that retain their their wealth long term. And then this is one of the reasons why a lot of people have proposed as a solution, whether it's effective or not, I'm not weighing in, but a wealth tax rather than an income tax, because people are are you know the 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 people are savvy to to the tactic of not having any income. And, and instead only having the, uh, the, you know, using this debt, basically this rolling debt to, to live off of. Or, or a painting in, in some, in some fucking climate controlled warehouse in a, in a, a Swiss, uh, or, or in a Scandinavian country. I just don't think it's normally that romantic. I, I really do think that the, you know, the most common one is just numbers getting juggled around from one column into the other column. But it's not income, so you don't have to pay taxes on it. And you can you can have a super yacht and not really spend much money. Yep. Well, I mean, you spend money, but you don't – it's not the kind of money that gets reported as income on your taxes, so you don't get taxed on it, and then, which is why billionaires pay less taxes by, you know, uh, percentage of taxes than anybody else does. Yeah. That was the a headline, you know, three or four years ago about Amazon workers on average are paying a higher percentage in income tracks than Bezos is. Like fucking over double. Because of all of this number shuffling that gets done so that they don't have any income on paper. You good, Jules? I think that was pretty good. I think that was we're good. good. That was a good close. Everybody, happy new year. We're glad to have you back. We have, uh, we have lots of plans coming up, lots of big ideas, very exciting things that we want to work on. So look out for the next episodes. We have, uh, we have a few interviews that we're, we're finally dialing in, and we have a couple on the books and uh, a few others that we're going to tr- be trying to firm up. We have some exciting people to talk to. We're even going to be doing a little bit of traveling. Uh, yes, we are doing some traveling, but we're not going to tell you where until we get back. <laughs> 
Yeah. So if you want to listen to all those upcoming episodes and hear about our travels and and listen to uh, the guests that we have coming on the show, definitely check back uh, for new episodes. We're going to be trying to do one every week, every other week. Generally, we're going to be releasing them on Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll, we'll firm up the schedule as we can. Both of us are very busy. I think I'm actually quite a bit busier than Jules is with my job. But the uh, we're going to do our best to have some kind of consistency with How this. How mean, Sean. Yeah, well, that was for the you're, wealth no, you're probably, shaming you're actually, that's <laughs> Busy equals wealthy in our society. Don't you know that? <laughs> but we're going to do our best to keep it firmed up and uh, a little bit more regular than we have in the past. But it probably will not be every week, every single week. You know, even though it will be most of the time. That all said, if you want to uh, hear all of our episodes, make sure to subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wetwired. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at wetwiredpod. From that account, you can also find our personal accounts. So you can send hateful messages or pat us on the back, whichever one seems uh, like the what makes the most and there, sense to you. There, there is still a few of the $3 memberships left. There, like, there are very few of those left, but there are some left. Yeah. But there, there are some left. I mean, snatch them up while you can yeah. get them. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think there's like four or something like that. Three. Yeah. So yeah, go get those. And that means until next time, we'll see you out there. Later, skater. If any other discipline were allowed to operate on the bullshit assumptions of economics and then completely guide how we organize the modern world, yeah. it would be a scandal. It would be a scandal. You just assume everything away. And, and so that's a big part of it. And, and it is economic logic, you're exactly right, that has pushed this win-win thing. Whereas anybody who studies politics and power as their lens or sociology... Yeah. Sure. Completely understands that, you know, a lot of the time someone's down because someone's on their neck. And this becomes a lot easier to see when you go to historical episodes. You know, our, we're all biased about our own time, but we're all more clear-eyed about other people's times, right? So if you say in Downton Abbey or the world of kind of feudal England or the feudal world a while ago, are the people on the edge of the property who don't own the land but farm it and pay rent or are the servants and drivers living in the basement, are they there just because they haven't quite gotten into the castle yet? Or are they there because of what the people in the castle do, because of the system that they benefit from and fight to defend? And it's super obvious that they are down there because you are up there. And if you go to slavery in the South and you say, are the slaves slaves simply because they haven't become white masters yet? Or are they there because white masters are perpetuating a system that keeps them below? You say, it is obvious that they are down there because you are up here. And you go to the caste system in India and you say, are people untouchables just because they haven't read enough books to become a Brahmin yet? Or are the Brahmins actually maintaining a system that invents them as untouchables and keeps them down there and you say yes it's obvious that the people are down there because someone is standing on their neck and so then the question becomes why is it that when we look at our own society we suddenly unlearn what we have learned through history which is that when you have an injustice there's usually someone benefiting from it and that person usually needs to be moved out of the way and have their power reduced in order for justice to be done <laughs>